0: You can't think about it this way, right? Because if you can't build a company to sell. You have to think about building a company to generate enough value for your customers. Your customers will buy the product. If enough customers buy your product, then somebody will want to buy it.
1: Welcome to the Cashing Out Podcast, where our fellow founders share real stories and offer honest advice around selling their companies to some of the top acquirers in the world. My name is Todd Sullivan, CEO of ExitWise, where we help business owners create the exits they deserve. Today, my guest is Melissa Kwan, who is currently the co-founder and CEO of eWebinar, a top automated webinar platform. Prior to eWebinar, Melissa spent 13 years building three successful companies without venture capital backing. Her last company, Spacio, became the real estate industry's number one open house sign-in solution, helping agents automate lead capture and follow-up. Melissa sold Spacio in 2019 to a strategic buyer after years of struggling to build her company with virtually no resources. Our fellow founders will easily relate to Melissa's story, especially those who have not had the benefit of venture capital funding. From eating one meal a day to reduce her personal burn, to growing Spatio to over 100,000 users and selling for mid-seven figures, Melissa Kwan gives our listeners a good look into the expectations versus reality of building and exiting a successful SaaS business. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Melissa Kwan. Melissa, thank you so much for being here. I was really excited to have you on because, you know, I've listened to you on other podcasts. I've listened to your podcast. I've read a lot of stuff about you. And one of the things I really love is I hear like true fellow founder coming out of you. All of the kind of trials and tribulations and sacrifices that you made building these companies over the last, what, 13 years, it was really inspirational. So having you on to tell your story of building companies, but also selling to a strategic, a strategic where you developed this relationship while you were building your company, I think is something that we can all learn from. And just so you know, uh, Mark Cuban had this time slot, but when you agreed, I immediately (laughs) bumped him. So thank you for being here.
0: Thanks so much for having me and bumping Mark Cuban. (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) So again, like you have an amazing startup story. And I think if you could go back from the beginning and start with the companies that, you know, and how you built them, I think people are going to really get a sense of who you are and how you decided to build companies against maybe conventional wisdom based on where you were living at the time, frankly.
0: Yeah, so that's a big, big question. I've been in startups for 13 years. Um, working on my third right now e webinar. All three of them are bootstrapped. My first 10 years, I built two companies, both in real estate technology. So, real estate technology is a, a pretty small industry, even though it sounds big, like there's there's a finite amount of companies that that are in that space. My first company was more of like an agency where we built products for real estate developers. And that kind of like became the second company. So even though it was like two separate enterprises, it felt like one company, 10 years. My second company was an enterprise SaaS company, my first product company, but it was still like sales led. And, you know, I was living in Vancouver in my first startup. I moved to New York to build my second startup just to be closer to the industry. You know, New York is one of the few cities in the world where you could really call it a real estate city like literally everybody cares about real estate. Yeah. Like my roommate, my first roommate in New York had an obsession about floor plans and he's a banker. So (laughs) he would actually go look at floor plans on like his free time. So that just gives you an idea of like what New Yorkers are like. And my second company was the one that was acquired called Spacio. It was a real estate check-in app that we sold to brokerages and franchises. And, you know, like I said, that company we built for, you know, five years and sold in in like year four and a half, but it really felt like a 10 year journey. And then I started eWebinar two months after that company was was acquired.
1: You know, so I love to hear the journey with Spacio, right? So you answered the question of why move Vancouver to New York and not kind of like straight down the the coast to San Francisco, right, into kind of startup Mecca, because it's, you're doing a real estate play. And you say the industry's small. We see a lot of different companies here that are looking to sell, and we actually have a real estate technology company in process right now. It's just awesome, and it's really fun to learn about that industry. So you move to New York to start this, but I would love you to kind of give the color of the sacrifices that you're making in order you know, to, to build this company.
0: So first of all, I didn't move to New York to start it. I started it already, but I couldn't be close enough to my customers. Mm -hmm. A lot of these people were in New York and anyone who's lived in New York knows that people don't work with companies that are not in New York, at least to start. If you don't have an office, if you don't see people for happy hour, you're not relevant. So I just went from going there every six weeks to just eventually being there most of my time. And, you know, luckily home, like Vancouver at that point was, was fairly close. so It was easy for me to do. Um, But I I don't think the sacrifices are unique to that company specifically. Okay. I think when you start a company, you're sacrificing so many things. I mean, there's just so many, but just a a few of them that kind of come to mind is like, I moved to New York when I was 32. And, you know, I was at the beginning of building that company. When you're 32, 10 years out of university, a lot of your friends are fairly successful. Right. Mm -hmm. Like they're, you know, they're done with their residency programs and now they're a surgeon, (laughs) right? They're done with, you know, whatever program in their law firm and now they're a lawyer and, you know, they're meeting their partners, getting married, having kids and buying their first apartments. And you're not doing any of those things. Yeah. And it's not that you're like, oh, I'm not going to do any of those things because I'm building my startup. It's because you don't have any money. You don't have (laughs) any income. So that was, I think, the toughest thing is... Watching your peers move on with their life and the life you're supposed to have, right? Because all your life, society and your parents tell you this is the path you're going to go on, but you're not doing any of those things because you you cannot, you can't hold a relationship because you don't have any money to do any of those things, <laughs> the travel, to go out, right? I would meet my friends after dinner, make up an excuse that, you know, I couldn't show up for dinner just so I can meet them afterwards. So I didn't have to pay for dinner and drinks. Yeah. And these are just some of those lifestyle sacrifices, right? Like I moved to New York and started a co-living space and lived with four other people in my early 30s or, you know, even in my mid-30s. Nobody did that, right? People like no longer have roommates. But I think, you know, those are kind of the lifestyle sacrifices that jump out. But I also had a lot of fun. It's because I took a different path that I got to have all these experiences of living in a co-living house, being in New York, right? Even though I didn't have any money and being exposed to really creative people and creative cultures. And because I was in New York, I met my life partner and then we left New York to travel for three years full time. Just to experience the world, and eventually we found a home in Amsterdam. So also understanding that I would not have all these new experiences if I did walk that traditional path. So I'm very grateful for having those experiences and having those pains. But at the time, it felt so much more unbearable. Right. I think hindsight 2020, like, of course, your life is your life, but that was really hard. And then of course, like you know, in the beginning, not being able to get customers. And, you know, for two years, I had less than a hundred bucks in my account. I would only siphon money into my account after everybody else was paid and then pay myself just enough to make rent and just basic expenses. And then every time I ran out of money, I would pay myself a little bit and then take side projects to make payroll and then also pay for my own rent. So I did that for, probably 7 out of the 10 years that I was in my first two startups. So, I don't think these are unique sacrifices. I do think that it's probably unique to your first one or two startups where you're not getting a lot of traction and you don't have disposable income.
1: Oh, thank you for sharing that. I it just brings back all the memories, right, of building my first company with my brother living in the closet of an attic of a fraternity house where we weren't allowed to live, having to jump over a fence to get in and over a fence to get out and be like hiding just because you didn't have any money, you know, for rent. And I remember, you know, your friend's are, like you said, they're advancing in their careers and you get invited to trips and you make excuses of, you know, why you can't go. And I just, I remember a, a Vegas trip where I did show up, but I ordered like the child PB&J for a meal because I said I wasn't hungry. Right. So uh, I get all of that. I, you know, one funny story where I, I was working in, in New York and a friend of mine said, Oh yeah, I'm going to be in New York. Uh, he's like, we you know, I'm going to be staying at the W. Where are you staying? And I'm like, "Well, I'm also staying at a place that begins with one letter. It's called the Y." Right? <laughs> so, I'm in a co, yeah. you know, co, whatever you call it, right? Share up one bathroom on a hallway in Midtown at the Vanderbilt YMCA and living there for essentially 7 months to try to get a startup that's in New York to work. So you're right. This is not unique to all of us. But when I heard you know your stories, I just thought it was so authentic. That willingness to keep battling until you made it really work, right? So Spacio turns a corner for you, right? It was like a hundred thousand customers you ended up having, and you know, no small feat. And then you're you're able to sell the business. Can you tell me a little bit about, you know, when you knew that business was working and at what point you decided it's probably time to think about selling?
0: Yeah, so we had a hundred or a little bit over a hundred companies when we sold, but over, uh, I think it was like over 120,000 users within those companies because it was enterprise SaaS. And so it probably took us like two and a half years to find our first paying customer. Mm -hmm. And because my first company was an agency, I didn't have, like it was in the space, it was in the real estate space, but I didn't have a concept of how hard it would be to build a product, mm-hmm. like an actual product that would, you know, that someone would take out their credit card for. And, you know, cause previously an agency is when, you know, you, you sell a deal, they pay you, you deliver. And I thought coming into this one that, you know, I kind of knew what I was doing, but you know. Of course, I think every entrepreneur needs to be like overly optimistic mm-hmm. <laughs> to like do anything else. Like if somebody was like, oh yeah, this is really hard. I would have second guessed it. But what ended up happening and the reason why I was in such a dark place was because I took out all the revenue from my first company, took a loan against that with a bank mm-hmm. of almost an equal amount. That's how I got the capital to start the second company. Mm -hmm. And not have to take major projects. Because if you take projects, your developers and you are trying to sell more projects. And so you can't actually build a product. So I knew I had to take at least a one-year break to get our developers to build a product. Mm -hmm. What I underestimated was how long it took to build the product that somebody would pay for. We Mm -hmm. knew that it would be an open house product, but exactly what is the feature set that people are going to actually pay you for? Mm -hmm. That is the hardest part. Right. So, um, it took us two and a half years before the first person paid us $10 and the way we got that first person was I was so desperate that I told myself within a 90 day period that I would do anything like literally leave no stone unturned. And part of that was to talk to anybody who might give me money to stretch my 90 day runway. And I was in a co-working space and there was a VC based out of that co-working space. And I was just pitching this VC, Mm -hmm. like having no idea how to pitch a VC. And he was like, you know, I think there's something here. I just think there's too many moving parts. Maybe you should strip away 90% of your product, just sell this one, one sliver. Like everybody goes into an open house and they sign in, take away everything except for the sign in sheet and just, you know, just get your 10 customers. Don't worry about a hundred customers. Don't worry about a thousand use the feature, like build on the feature that everybody uses and focus on 10 customers. And I walked out of that thinking, he does not know what he's talking about. This is going to be way too simple. No one's going to pay for a sign in sheet, but didn't have any other tricks. Mm -hmm. So I walked out of there, called my co-founder and said, this is the feedback that I got. What do you think? Should we try it? Mm -hmm. And that's when we Say, yeah, okay, well, what do we have to lose at this point? So we stripped away 90% of features that we had. We made it only an iPad sign-in sheet that wasn't even an app. It was just like browser optimized. Mm -hmm. And then I went on Craigslist um, and I just went to open houses that were happening that weekend and I got them to try this product for free. And then I would secret shop those open houses to see how people would ask me to sign in and if they would actually use it. Sure. So that was how we got the first person... To pay us 10 bucks on Stripe. Mm-hmm. And I thought like I was sitting in a meeting at that time and I thought that was my co-founder testing Stripe. Sure. And he was like, no, that was someone actually paying us. And then within, because I come from an enterprise sales world within the next 90 days, we turned it into an enterprise product because people like brokerages started asking us if we had an enterprise version of it. Cause real estate agents were using it and then telling their, their managers and then sure. they wanted to offer it mm-hmm. for the rest of the, you know, for the rest of their agents. Oh, so great. while it took two and a half years to find the first $10, it took an extra one year for us to hit profitability and then an extra year for us to get acquired. So, okay. but I did get into a lot of debt because I had used up all that money. hmm and use the money that I took out a loan from under my own name, and I was not making money <laughs> over those over those two and a half years. So that was kind of the the story.
1: That's a real real struggle, but it was such a great feeling, right? When you see the first customer pay, and you immediately want to call that person and say, "Why? Why did you pay? What was <laughs> it, what was so compelling? Tell me, tell me." Yeah, what a, what a great feeling. Can you tell me about, you got inbound interest for this business, right? But that wasn't as if this person was just calling out of the blue. You created a relationship. And I think, you know, a lot of founders ask us, you know, how can I think about starting to seed the market to see if there's interest out there? Can you talk to me a little bit about the relationship you created to eventually drove that interest?
0: Remember, that I forgot to answer your previous question of like, how did I know I wanted to sell? hmm I think a lot of people, so I'm, I want to address that one first. I think a lot of people sure. think, oh, my startup is in a certain revenue or a certain growth rate, mm-hmm. and I'm going to sell. I'm running out of money, so I'm going to sell. For me, it was super simple. I had been in the same industry for almost a decade. I truthfully hated being in that industry. Mm-hmm. I did not want to be there. I woke up every single day and I pretended to be someone else, to not let my co-founder know, to not let my team know. And I hated what I was doing and I could not feel the successes that I was getting because I hated supporting my product. Mm. And that's not a great place to be for a founder. It's a very lonely place because yeah. you cannot tell your co-founder and, you know, I, I had a peer group and, and like I do now of, you know, founders in my industry or in my space that, you know, every few months we, we would connect and kind of riff about certain things and Aaron, who was the CEO of HomeSpotter at the time, was in that peer group. And I'd already known him through like conferences Mm -hmm. and things like that. So Mm -hmm. um, as I mentioned in the beginning, it's a very, very small industry. So there's a small group of founders where we just kind of connect like on on WhatsApp or on text or whatnot. Um, So that was kind of when I knew like I was just not having fun. And I really saw the opportunity costs because so many cool things were happening at that time that I was not a part of. And I saw that if I had a SaaS company in real estate, my multiple was X. But if I spent my energy in an open industry, my multiple could be two to three times of, of real estate. Yeah. And I would be able to spend much less energy and effort because people outside of real estate are more prone to buying technology. And I would be able to go into many more industries and many more different languages and, and geographies. So I saw the opportunity cost of what I could not do because this is where I was. Yeah. And that's kind of when I knew I needed it, but the the relationship that I had with that acquirer was really just an industry friend that I would frankly complain to mm-hmm. and just riff to on a regular basis. Yeah. And I remember the one call I was I was just like Aaron, I'm so tired of this. I wonder if my co-founder would let me sell my share mm-hmm. while I Go and do something else. Um, Do you think that's possible? And he was like, oh, you know, if you're serious about this, we are looking to make our first acquisition. If you're really serious, then we should have a conversation, but you're going to have to stay with us for... You know, two to three years.
1: Yeah, that's great. I mean, you, you've touched on a lot of things. I think founders that go into these businesses, if they're just purely looking at how do I create, you know, an economic win and are not truly passionate about the industry, it gets to be really a slog, right? Because you're going to be in it longer than you think and you're going to get less out of it financially than, I, than you think, for, at least for the majority of people. And so, you know, we feel really fortunate of what we get to do today is helping founders. And, you know, we frankly, we, I think we do this for free, we enjoy it so much. But I remember going back, and like, oh, do I really want to sell another t-shirt? Do I want really <laughs> want to go to another trade show with the same people in the same industry, right? It just becomes work, work, work. So thank you for sharing that because that can drive the exit for a lot of people. I think, you know, when you touched on when people get to a certain revenue level, is that the trigger? Um, we find that the most successful exits are really with entrepreneurs that are really passionate about their industry. They have a lot of gas left in the tank. And they're really playing in that fourth inning of a nine inning game because what they're really selling when they go to market is um, the future cash flows of the business. And when a business can see somebody like you super passionate about their industry and going to take them to the promised land, then you create outsized outcomes, particularly with strategics. So I'm not surprised that you know, when you create a relationship in your industry and you got somebody to vent to, they get to really know you, they get to understand your product, and it was probably pretty easy for that person to say, yeah, you know what, there's a real fit here, but I'm not doing this without Melissa, right? You're key to it for at least a little while. One of the topics I think comes up a lot for us is co-founders, right? Do they both have to make the exact same decision when they go to sell a, a company? Can one stay six months, one stay two years, right? We try to tell people we want to know exactly what you each individually want, and we try to create that situation. How is it for you? Because you, did, you had a co-founder at Spacio, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think he was equally exhausted, mm-hmm. but in a different way. Right, because he wasn't customer facing. But don't forget, like we had so many years of not being successful. Yeah. And I'm not an engineer. I can only imagine from what I see that engineers are like artists, right? You build something, nobody uses it. It's a bit defeating. Mm -hmm. You know, like you have to keep pivoting and keep trying new things, and nobody uses it, nobody's saying, Hey, this is a really great thing, and and I'm getting a lot of value out of it. Like it's not fun. So we had our last few years was fairly successful, but The first, you know, six, six, seven years was just a massive slog. Yeah, And so there was a lot of exhaustion just mentally from that. And even though he always got paid, like he was always paid like under market. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he had the same issues as me with, you know, watching your peers do well and you're not and and feeling like you're not, you know, you're not succeeding. And is there going to be a light at the end of the tunnel? So we never openly spoke about it because Mm -hmm. I think deep inside we wanted to cheer each other on Mm -hmm. and we were just like too deep into it at that point but we had such an understanding also that like i was the business leader of this enterprise so it wasn't like we had a discussion like hey should we sell or not because we didn't shop the company Mm -hmm. right and the reason why we didn't shop the company was because i was at a point in my life that i didn't want to be more exhausted than where I was. I didn't want to have even less fun. I think when people think about selling their company, they don't think about the extra two to three years that you have to work for someone else. Right. There was such a small group of people that could afford us that I would actually work for that I don't want to shop the company. What Mm -hmm. mattered to me at the, that time was not getting the highest like outcome, the Mm -hmm. biggest price point. The biggest driver for me was I could keep my lifestyle, which is a fully remote team. And my team was mostly in Vancouver at the time. And I was nomading like for three years. I nomaded. I left New York to nomad and I cannot have a CEO that would have made me give that up. Sure. I was not going to disrupt my lifestyle. And you'd be surprised at how many CEOs would not want you to do that. Right. Like you have to be in the office, you have to do certain things. Right. And so because I knew Aaron, um, my acquirer so well, and he knew all the trials and tribulations because I was complaining to him for the past year. Mm -hmm. So I knew that if I sold this company to him, not only is he a good guy, he knew that I wasn't putting on a dog and pony show to sell this company. Whereas Mm -hmm. with everybody else, I would have to. Absolutely. Right. He knew all the challenges I was having internally and the challenges I was having with my co-founder. Yep. And he was still going to embrace that. And he knew how important my lifestyle was. And he was going to embrace that. And he was one of the very few people. So that's why I didn't shop the company. And I guess with my co-founder dynamic, like, I think there was enough trust that if I said, Hey, we're selling the company and this is the offer we're entertaining. Mm-hmm. And I believe because I know this person so well that the offer he's going to give us is fair yep. that I'm not going to go and shop it. Yeah, so that you... was kind of like... That was there was just an understanding.
1: Thanks, Michelle. Yeah, if you have a sense that that it's that it's fair and you're getting the fit component right to live the life that you want to continue to live. There's just so much value in that. And the co-founder it sounds like he really trusted you that this is this is the right place to be. You know, I, I think that. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. Even if you had an investment banker who said, "Hey, Melissa, we're going to you know shop you to a hundred different buyers," you wouldn't be content. And as long as the offer was fair and you trusted the person, you could even structure a deal where there is some earnout component, right? Which most deals are going to have. And if you don't know uh, the buyer well. You never know what's really their intention behind setting up those structures because they're not going to be really set up in your favor unless you have a great investment banker and a great M&A attorney on your side uh, fighting for you. In your deal, did you have enough trust to leave some of the compensation to kind of later down the road while your company is performed?
0: I mean I think every deal I know of has an earnout component otherwise mm-hmm. how is the founder going to be there <laughs> right even yep. even if there's like a 6 months earnout it's still yep. an earnout mm-hmm. the most important thing to the acquirer is that your business is not disrupted right what they're buying is is your success and the revenue they're buying mm-hmm. your customers and your customers trust you especially yep. for a small company like us so it wasn't like we have to tie you to this it's more we need you to be here to make sure that your customers know that they're going to be taken care of And I knew that as well. And it turns out that I ended up negotiating. I had a two year earnout, but I ended up negotiating like, oh, you know, a six month early exit and then stayed on as kind of a halftime consultant if anything needed my intervention. But the other company that bought me was, you know, had had a much more structured sales process and they already had because I was in in charge of sales and BD. And we had a lot of share customers already at that point that it was very clear, probably in the first year that I didn't really need to be there, that it was more important for my technical co-founder to be there, to transfer his knowledge to a new team. So there was actually challenges in finding a place for me that we never fully figured out. And I don't think that's, you know, unique to us, but also I started eWebinar two months after that company was sold because I just needed a new challenge and my CEO had to sign off on that. So, you know, a year and a half into selling that company, eWebinar was just about to go to market. So it just, the timing kind of co- kind of matched where mm-hmm. there wasn't really anything else for me to, to pass on and do. And it was time for me to work on something else. Yeah, so that was kind of the, like, our, our story. And then my co-founder stayed on for a little bit longer than, than two years.
1: You know what's also interesting, Melissa, is that you were able to make this decision really with just you and your co-founder. You didn't have venture capital firms. You didn't have external investors that were potentially going to push you to to go to market right, and try to maximize the dollar, every last dollar. I think you, you built this company very consciously going to New York in an environment where it was all VC and incubator and and that was the thing to do. Can you talk a little bit, about that decision and how it really paid off giving you flexibility and frankly, you know, a better financial outcome.
0: Yeah. I don't know if it was better or not better. Right. Because I don't have a different scenario. Mm -hmm. Um, I can say that I didn't move to New York to be closer to startups. Like I didn't know that that environment existed. I didn't have a concept of what New York was going to be. I wanted to move to New York for two reasons. One, to be closer to my customers, but second, to be close to people around my life stage, right? Because I was in Vancouver where it felt like a much smaller town. Okay. Um, you know, people chose very different paths. Like a lot of people weren't in startups, so I couldn't really connect with friends that I even grew up with. Um, and even though I knew them for longer, I felt more and more disconnected with them because they Mm. didn't have an idea of what I was doing. And then they were, you know, getting married, buying their first home, going into a different path. And even though I had no friends in New York, I felt more connected to the people that were doing things that I was doing. Some were younger, some were older. So I I felt more at home with where I was at. But as soon as I went to New York and getting more connected with the startup community, I was then introduced to the idea that when you have a startup, you raise money that's just what you do. I didn't realize I could raise money because I had taken out that loan. I had taken out all the revenue and that's how I was going to build the business. And, you know, I didn't realize that you could use other people's money. And that kind of sounded like, you know, a utopian way of building your, your company at that Mm. time, because I was so strapped, Mm -hmm. but I started trying to raise money because I was so desperate. And because nobody would give me money And I was still building my business at the time. And as I was trying to raise money, we became profitable. And then I ended up calling my own shots. So then I kind of saw the two different, I guess, perspectives of building a business. And then I learned that you can actually build a business without raising capital. And then I saw all my friends that had raised capital and what a different path they were on. All they cared about was raising more money. Getting more intros to other VCs, raising the new round and keeping up the growth numbers where I was at that point leaving New York to nomad for three years because I could and working as much or as little as I wanted to having a super small team, not worrying about HR and people leaving and and all those things because we had such a small team that it felt like family. And, you know, at that point I was already working like maybe four days a week, like I do now. Um, and you know, being not hugely profitable, but not, you know, not unprofitable. So I kind of saw both sides and realized that you can build a company bootstrapping and maybe not necessarily having a better financial outcome. Like, I don't know what that is, but I do know that when we sold our company, you know, at the mid seven figures, my co-founder and I own 95% of the company. We had some family and friends investment and there was no way if we took venture capital that they would have accepted that price, right? We would have had a board, at least one person that had to sign off. And I can't tell you how disheartening it would have been if I wanted to sell so badly because I wasn't having fun and I was seeing the opportunity cost and someone who gave me money, who wasn't even an operator in my business, mm-hmm. stopped the sale. Yep. And maybe I would have had to keep going or shut down the company, or maybe they would have hired someone else as a CEO and maybe I would have had to give up a chunk of my equity, but the outcome would not have had been the same for us. Sure. So that's what how I see the difference is a lot of people think, bootstrapping is a financial choice. But for me, and I think a lot of other startup founders, it's actually a lifestyle choice. And that's why I made that lifestyle choice this time around as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, that leads really nicely into it. That was great, right? I think you distilled it really well, having the single experience that you've had but now, you know, you've clearly learned, and you're making the decision to do it again with eWebinar. E-web- Can you tell us what you're doing today, and and how the last exit and the way you built that company is really impacting how you're growing this one?
0: Yeah. So um, eWebinar helps automate webinars. Um, So we turn any video into an interactive webinar that you could put on a recurring schedule. So imagine like your sales demos, training webinars, onboarding webinars that you're doing over and over again, or you wish you could be doing. We help companies do hundreds of those every single month without... Being in front of a camera to do it live, um, without losing that personal touch that your customers care so much about, mm. because we deliver such a beautiful experience with an asynchronous chat system as well.
1: I really, I really love the product, and and when you start with the premise that is a live webinar really better than you know, a pre-recorded webinar, like when you share, like in every instance, the pre-recorded one is better, and this ability to create. You know, trust with your audience and really engage them when they want to be engaged, how they want to be engaged, and create that kind of ongoing, kind of feel like a live experience. I thought it was a great product, right? And I've just used it that kind of one time, as you know. Um, I guess what the question really is you made the decision to go in and bootstrap this business again, right? Knowing how hard it was the first time, but with the understanding that you had flexibility at the goal line to make your decisions when it was time to get out. I don't want to put the words in your mouth, but how are you thinking about this one differently given the experiences that you've had?
0: Yeah. So I want to address that it was so much harder the first time or first couple of times because I didn't have any money Mm -hmm. and I didn't have a concept of what it took to build a revenue generating product that is no longer the case. Because I had an exit, I have money. Mm -hmm. And I have, I I didn't sell it for like retirement level money, which is why Mm -hmm. I had to start a webinar two months after, because I don't want to be working, you know, for the next 10 years. I, there, there was some urgency there, but I had enough money to float myself and invest in the business. Mm -hmm. And I had the expertise to, you know, raise some family and friends capital to get it started. But mainly like, I don't have to work for the next few years. Mm-hmm. And that's the reality, right? And a lot of people are like, oh, you can bootstrap this one because you, have, you sold the last one. Well, that wasn't always the case, mm-hmm. right? You, you earn your way there. Yes. Um, and because I have a concept of what it takes to build a product and the, the problem that we're solving at eWebinar is a problem that I personally experienced for five years in my mm-hmm. last startup. I was the person doing all the live demos, right? The the live training, the live onboarding as I was traveling around the world. Like I remember one day I did eight of the same back-to-back onboarding for different companies. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this cannot be my life. I cannot earn this freedom and then have my freedom restricted by my customer's demo schedules. So why can't be, there be a product that does exactly what I do, but a better job mm-hmm. because more people can attend, right? There, it could be a better experience because there won't be like You know, I won't be exhausted, there won't be blunders, there won't be connection issues. So I really thought about this product for five years and then decided this was a problem that I was going to solve. So I had money to to invest in a team. I had money to float myself. I had a concept of exactly what I was going to build Mm -hmm. to generate revenue from day one. And that was a very different experience from my previous one. So the other thing that I was thinking about coming to this one was not, How do I build a company to sell, right? I I think you can't think about it this way, right? Because if you can't build a company to sell, you have to think about building a company to generate enough value for your customers. Your customers will buy the product. Mm -hmm. If enough customers buy your product, then somebody will want to buy it, right? When you build a company to sell, how are you going to guess what the acquirer is going to actually want, right? So when I think about this company, it's not to sell, it's how can I build a company that gives me the lifestyle that I want, right? How do I build a company that pays me and everybody involved a good salary? Yeah. So even if I don't sell it, it's just going to be a cash machine. And that's how I think about this business today.
1: That's great. And I, I love, frankly, your product works across industries, right? You talked about real estate tech being relatively small, so your your total addressable market, although it seems like it'd be really, really big, maybe with this product, it doesn't really have industry borders, right? We can use yeah. it in M&A. It can be technology to agriculture, right? Lots of different companies will be able to use this. So yeah, it seems like a fantastic offering and something that it really is needed. You know, I, I really appreciate it. I want to be respectful of your time. I think, you know, I've learned a ton and just feel like a kinship to you having gone through some of the very, very similar things to build our businesses. And, you know, I think you said it really well. We really enjoyed it along the way, even though maybe we're behind our peers in the way that we kind of measure success in our culture. But boy, what a journey when you're able to find the level of success that, that you have, and, and then be so, uh, you know, excited to do it again and come out with, with something that I know the world is really going to love. Do you have any kind of last words of wisdom for founders that may find themselves in your shoes considering to sell the business at some point when you think about M&A specifically?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, and I touched on this earlier, Is like, I don't think a lot of founders think about their life after selling. Mm-hmm. And that is the number one question right? Like I think the number two question is how much do I want to sell it for? And of course that's important, Mm -hmm. but like I think this is important even with like picking the career that you want, picking the product that you want, thinking about selling your company is what is the life that you want to lead? Because it's going to be the next two years or three years. Who do you want to work for? Who don't you want to work for? Right? If someone is going to disrupt your lifestyle, how much more do they need to pay you for you to, compensate. Yeah. Right. And at that point in my life in the past, there was no amount of money that you could pay me at least for what my company was generating. Mm-hmm. Cause there was, there was a fixed multiple, right? It's like in real estate, it's like, if you're not doing well, it's one of three. If you are doing pretty well, it's three to five. If you're exceptional, it's five and above. Right. So okay. if somebody's going to pay me the average multiple, then, okay, I'm not willing to give up my lifestyle. Mm-hmm. But if somebody wants to pay me two times the average multiple, okay, maybe it's a different, you know, maybe it's a different conversation. Yep. But the number one thing is like, what are you willing to live with and what can't you live without? And for me, I didn't want to give up my lifestyle of traveling. I wanted someone that, to protect my team, to give them market salaries after all these years and to keep them where they are. Yep. And this was the person, you know, that, that was going to do it. So I, I think, think about like, who will you not work for? If you were to have a boss again after not having a boss for so many years, what is he or she going to look like? Yeah. And that I think is is my biggest advice is like think about that first and then as the offers start to come in, then you can figure out like okay, what is what is the best offer that I'm going to take.
1: Melissa, that is perfect advice, and I would tell you that if you're going to go into an M and A transaction, describing that in brutal honesty to your representatives, your investment bankers, uh, to carve out that path for you, and just eliminate anyone who is interested in your business but not interested in supporting how you want your life to be for those two or three years. That's the way you create the the right situation. You were able to do it on your own, so congratulations on that. But yeah, you should never. go into these transactions, just say, I'll take anything that comes my way. You really want to plan that out. So listen, thank you for being here. I've learned a ton. I think our listeners have definitely learned something. Please let me know how I can ever return the favor, but thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks again for listening to the Cashing Out Podcast. For more founder exit stories, please subscribe to the Cashing Out Podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please remember, exitwise.com and the Cashing Out podcast are for entertainment purposes only. This should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions.